So how are you guys doing tonight? Well, we have been on quite a journey. We started four weeks ago, and um, we looked at the names of God that were given to the people of Israel as they traversed through the wilderness. Then we went from there, and we looked at the wilderness itself. And I am still reeling from the things that we learned about the wilderness, that it's in the wilderness that God formed his people. And, you know, God still forms us in the wildernesses of our lives. You show me a person that's never been through anything, and I'll show you a person that has little to no character. Because godly character is forged in the furnace of affliction. Godly character is forged through the wildernesses of our life. And also the idea that it's in the wilderness that God speaks to his people and and gives us that word, that defining word for our lives. So we learned so much about the wilderness. Then we learned about the promised land. We're on our way, but we're not there yet. As good as things can get in time, it pales in comparison to what we will have when we step out of time and into eternity and reign with Jesus. Remember that old song, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. If heaven's not my home, then Lord, what will I do? And I will never forget Erlene Cooper, right over here, coming to visit Stuart and I when we were in South Carolina, and we went to the Biltmore. And anyone, who's been to the Biltmore? Anyone who's ever been to the Biltmore, it is just this huge, lavish mansion that was built in the early 1920s. And while we were there, we drove by, and Erlene looked at it, and she says, my, that is beautiful. And she took just a moment, she says, but it doesn't compare to the mansion that God has waiting for me in heaven. (laughs) And I'm like, if that doesn't just put everything right back into place and context, what God has given us here is good, but this is not permanent. This is temporary, and there's coming a day when we will trade these bodies for bodies that have no cancer for bodies that have no diabetes, for bodies that have no disease and no sickness in them, where we will trade our sorrows and our burdens for for an eternity in heaven with Jesus. So we're not there yet, folks, but we are on our way, and that's what the wilderness is all about. So tonight, I want to talk about the wilderness complaints. Now, only Israel complained in the wilderness because God's people do not complain anymore, do we? right. Yeah, I could introduce you to some folks. So I know we've already prayed. I won't do it again because you, can, you just can't pray too much. Heavenly Father, in the mighty name of Jesus, we ask that you open our eyes to see the reality of who you are. And Father, we ask you to open our eyes to look into our own lives too, to see those areas where we might need to repent and change. We ask you, Spirit of the living God, invade this place tonight. Permeate us with your presence. Let us leave tonight transformed people. We want you to change us because we want to be more like you. But more important than anything else, let everything we say and let everything we do bring honor and glory to your name, Jesus. For it is our desire to lift and exalt you tonight. For it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Well, before the actual wandering of Israel began, before they reached the mountain of God where he gave them the Ten Commandments and they entered into covenant with him, before all of that, they made four distinct complaints. I'm going to go through these quickly because I want to get to the complaints that they made after Sinai. 
in Exodus chapter 14, verses 10 through 12, they're standing, they've left Egypt, and they're standing between a rock and a hard spot. Actually, they're standing between a sea and Pharaoh's army and nowhere to go. And in a, in a space like that, after they'd seen all the deliverance of God to get them out of Egypt, you would think that maybe, just maybe, they would go, you know, this God, he did all these things and got us out of Egypt. He's going to do something here. But no, these people have no faith and they're functioning completely in fear. And they say, it would be better that we died in Egypt than to die out here in the desert. And the people began, they'd not even been out of Egypt for more than a few days. And already they're saying, we want to go back to Egypt. It's amazing to me how God can set us free, but at the first sign of trouble, our immediate response is typically, I want to go back to the way it used to be. And we forget about the pain and the suffering and the struggles of the chains that God broke off of our lives. So you have the fear of Pharaoh's army. But what does God do? God says, stand still. And Moses lifts up the staff of God and the water parts and the people go across on dry ground. This time when they complained, it was out of fear. And God responded by delivering them and taking care of their enemies. In Exodus 15, verses 23, uh, 22 through 27, they come to a place and they see water. And they're very thirsty. Because as you saw the pictures of the desert, water just isn't prolific in the desert. And so they see the water, and they're thinking, finally, at last, water for us, water for our children, water for our livestock. And they get there, and the water is undrinkable because it's bitter, and it's called mara. And mara in Hebrew does mean bitter. And what does Moses do? God speaks to Moses, and Moses takes a stick at the commandment of the Lord and throws the stick into the water. And when he throws the stick into the water, the water becomes drinkable. And he, God healed the waters, and there God revealed one of his names, Jehovah Rapha, the Lord God that heals you and heals the bitter, broken places in your life. So they complained because they needed water, and they were disappointed because what looked like was going to offer them water wasn't drinkable. So what does God do? God heals their disappointment, and he heals the water. In Exodus chapter 16, verses 1 through 4, the people are hungry. And there's not enough livestock and there's not enough grain that they brought with them out of Egypt to sustain them. So what does God do? He rains manna down from heaven. And when he rains the manna down from heaven, he gives strict instructions. Pick up so much per person in your family. Pick it up once a day. But on the Sabbath, the day before the Sabbath, get enough for two days. Because on the Sabbath day, there won't be any manna. Because he wanted to teach them to trust him daily. And he wanted to teach them to observe the Sabbath. So when they were hungry, he provided food for them. In chapter 17, verses 1 through 7, the complaints start again. The God who parted the sea, the God who healed the waters, the God who rained bread down from heaven. Now they're still complaining. And they say, we're thirsty. And God speaks to Moses and says, take the staff of the Lord that you have and strike the rock and water will come out. I was in Israel several years ago, and I found this print of the water coming out of the rock. And in my imagination, I always saw a little rock following them in the, following them in the wilderness. But this painting, this was a boulder. 
And it was, it was enormous, and the water was flowing out of it. And I thought, of course that makes all the sense in the world. A little stone that I could pick up and carry is not enough water for all those people, their children, and their livestock. It would have taken a gushing flow of water to be able to provide for all of them. So it wasn't just some little rinky-dink rock following them around. It was an enormous boulder. So when Pharaoh's army was chasing them, God delivered them. When they needed water and the water was bitter, God healed it. When they were hungry and wanted manna, uh, they were hungry and wanted bread, God gave them manna. When they were thirsty, God gave them water from a rock. These are the cries of a people in Exodus who do not yet trust. They cried because they were full of fear and they were full of disappointment. They were hungry and they were thirsty. God responds to each of these complaints in order to teach and to train his people to trust him. Each time, he didn't just barely provide for them. Each time, he abundantly provided for them and demonstrated his power to protect, to transform, to heal, to consistently provide and deliver all his people. God doesn't provide for us just a little bit. God always is an abundant provider. God doesn't just eke out enough for us to get by on. God abundantly gives us more than enough to satisfy No human being is designed to be a slave. Not one. We were not designed to be slaves to anything nor to anyone. We were not designed to be slaves to addictions, nor fears, nor other issues. We were especially not designed to be slaves to another person. But we were designed to be governed And there's a difference between the two. We were designed intentionally to be governed by God himself. A slave has no choice. But when you're under the government of God, you have a choice. You can accept his authority or you can reject it. A slave has no responsibility. But a person who's under the government of God, they are responsible. Responsible to walk in the truth and the life and the light that God's provided. A slave can be mindless. They don't have to think through anything. They can go through the motions. But a man or a woman under the government of God must be a deep thinker and consider what am I doing, why am I doing it, and what will the ultimate consequence of this action be? We are a part of a system, not just in this country, but in this world. We are a part of a system to where we have almost created a government that provides for us to such an extent that we become slaves to it. And the way we become slaves to it is that it takes our choice away. You no longer have choice. The choice now belongs to the people in power and authority. You have no responsibility. Now the people who are over you will be responsible for you. And you have no need to think. You can be mindless. I saw this when I was in Romania. It was after the reign of Ceausescu, of course, and still there were people who had been under that regiment and they were still looking for a government to do for them what Ceausescu promised. They were wondering, when will the government provide me with oil for my furnace? When will the government send clothes and food for me? When will the government provide me housing and when will the government provide for me a job? That is the voice of socialism and even communism. Listen to me. Any government, any system 
that promises that you will not have to provide for yourself. Any system that tells you that you will have no responsibility and you'll be taken care of and all you'll have to do is just breathe in and breathe out. That's not a government. That's an oppression. Are you guys awake? All right. God created us to be governed by him. And that government says we have a choice. But it also says we have to face the consequences of those choices. His government says that we have responsibility. We have a responsibility to make good decisions and to be good managers of our time and to be diligent in our study and to be determined that we are going to discipline ourselves in those things that are pleasing to the Lord. It requires that we think that we engage our minds and use them for what they were created for to actually logically, critically think through situations and issues. The children of Israel had been slaves. For 400 years, they were not given a choice, they had no responsibility, and they could live their lives mindlessly. And now, God has to transition them from slavery to the government of God. And it's not going to happen overnight. He got them out of Egypt like that, but it's going to take him decades to get Egypt out of them. And some will never give up Egypt and they will die on the way. The four, for two years, they camped out at the mountain of God. For two years, two months, and approximately 20 days, they're camped out at the base of Sinai. This is in Numbers chapter 10, verse 11. Then they're given the word to move out. This would officially begin their wanderings. And their wanderings are going to last approximately 38 years. They are now the covenant people of God. And they've been immersed in the love, in the presence, and the law of God. They are now a people responsible. For two years camped at the base of the mountain of God, they have seen and they have heard and they have experienced the presence of God. They now have the law of God. And these very people, when God said, will you do that which I have commanded you to do? All the people with, vo with one voice said, yes, we will do all that you have commanded us to do. And they entered into covenant with him. So these are now the covenant people of God. So they go through the wilderness and everything's wonderful. No, I've titled this next section, now let the grumblings begin. In Numbers chapter 11, and I'm going to read quite a portion of scripture here. Now the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. The people therefore cried out to Moses and Moses prayed to the Lord and the fire died out. So the name of that place was called Tibera because the fire of the Lord burned among them. And the rabble who were among them had greedy desires, and the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? They just saw the fire of God go through the camp, and now they're crying out again. We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There's nothing at all to look at except this manna. Now the manna was like coriander seed in its appearance, like that of bdellium. The people would go out and gather it and grind it between two millstones or beat it in the mortar and boil it in a pot and make cakes with it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. And when the dew fell on the camp at night, the manna would fall with it. Now I'll move over to verse 18. 
and say to the people, this is God speaking to the Moses, and say to the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow you shall eat meat. For you, will, for you have wept in the ears of the Lord, saying, oh, that someone would give us meat to eat. For we were well off in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall not eat not one day, not two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him, saying, Why did we ever leave Egypt? Now, over to verse 31. Now there went forth a wind from the Lord, and it brought quail from the sea, and let them fall beside the camp about a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side all around the camp and about two cubits deep on the surface of the ground. And the people spent all day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail. He who gathered least gathered ten omers, and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. And the meat was still between their teeth before it was chewed. The anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a very severe plague. So the name of that place was called Kibroth Hata'avah, because there they buried the people who had been greedy. From Kibroth Hata'avah, the people set out for Hazaroth, and they remained at Hazaroth. Wow, what a story. Let's unpack this just a little bit. This complaint, this wailing, nagging, whining complaint into the ears of God is compelled or driven by boredom and a lack of gratitude for what God had already given them with the manna. Israel has seen the mighty, miraculous works of God, and he's withheld nothing good from his people. Everything that they've needed, he has supplied for them. This started with complaining. They cried like they were in serious straits. They cried like they were being attacked and slaughtered by an enemy army. They were complaining as though something really serious was going on, and their complaints kindled the fire of God. Why did these complaints kindle the fire of God and not the other first four? In Exodus, I can think of two reasons. Before they came to the mountain of God, they weren't in covenant with him, and they didn't know his law, and they didn't know him. But when they got to the mountain, and they saw and experienced, and for more than two years stayed camped out at that mountain with the law of the Lord, learning to trust him, in that two years, they had learned nothing. Can I just say this? If you accept Jesus in 1990 and there's absolutely no spiritual growth by the year 2000, there's a problem. If you've spent 40 years calling yourself a Christian and there's no change, no transformation, no conviction, no difference in your life, there's a wire shorted out somewhere. Because one of the evidences of your Christianity is the transformation of who you are into someone that reflects the nature and the character of Christ. If you say that you know Jesus, that you've accepted him as Lord and Savior, it may be slow change. It may be subtle change, but it will be change. Because God's not about leaving you all as you are. It's not come as you are, stay as you are. It's come as you are and let him change you. Change must take place. Transformation, metamorphosis must take place in your life. How can the sovereign God of the universe take up residence within a human life and it not cause a change? I see that as an impossibility. It makes absolutely no sense. I know who I was before Jesus came into my life, and it was a mess. 
I'm still a mess, but it's not like the mess I was when he first found me. Hallelujah. (laughs) For two and a half years, they've been camped out at the mountain of God, and it has made almost no difference, no measurable difference in their life. It started with complaining. They cried like someone who was in serious trouble. Their complaints kindled the fire of God. And even after the fire of God consumed some of the people who were on the outskirts, and it's always interesting to me that the people who are on the fringes are usually the first ones to go. They're like the Star Trek members with the red uniforms. You know that they're not coming back on that transporter. It's dangerous to live on the fringes. It has always been dangerous to live on the fringes of God's covenant. And it's always been dangerous to live on the fringes in your Christianity. Be in the center of God's will. Be in the center of spiritual growth and spiritual activity. Be in the center of doing that which is right and being right. Even after the fire of God came, the rabble and greedy desires infected the entire camp of Israel. It only takes a couple of people to influence an entire group. They began to say, we remember what we had in Egypt. And they tired of the manna, and they claimed that they have lost their appetite. Egypt is a type of sin. It's a place of slavery. Always has been, always will be. Whenever you see Egypt in Scripture, it is a reminder of what God wants to get us out of. Have you ever heard this conversation? Oh, I remember back in the day. Oh, man, we'd be so stoned. There were three days I don't even remember. Those conversations are dangerous. Because what it does is it romanticizes garbage and pulls you out of the reality of the fact that God saved you from that stuff. Isn't it amazing when we remember what God saved us from? It's usually all the fun stuff and it's never all the nights of throwing up in the toilet and not knowing who you're with and what you've done and what's been done to you. It's not about being in jail and breaking your parents' heart. When we remember Egypt, it's usually, oh, it's the leeks and the garlic. We remember Egypt. When you remember Egypt, remember it in reality. It was filthy and you wanted out. You were desperate and you wanted someone to save you. You were in chaos and there was no one who could help you but the Lord. And he, at just the right time, stepped in and said, I'll take you now. And delivered you from that garbage. That's right. We remember what we had in Egypt. They remembered the wrong thing. They forgot that they had to make bricks. They forgot that their wives and their daughters were taken whenever the Egyptians wanted them. They forgot that the Egyptians murdered their sons. They forgot that the Egyptians put them under the whip and the lash of the taskmaster. That's not what they're remembering. Listen, this is what they remember about Egypt. They tired of the manna and said, we've lost our appetite. This food that God's providing for us is just not tasty. This food that God has given to us, it's just not what I want. I don't want, I don't want that. I need something that's got a little more flavor to it. They were tired of what the Lord had been giving to them. They were bored with what they had. They were bored with freedom, protection, miraculous provision from heaven. 
can I say this and listen to me well? The church becomes easily bored with Jesus. Therein, it's not enough for us to worship and to hear and respond to his word and to love him in the congregation. Now we have to have light lasers and smoke machines. We have to have all kinds of trappings and a dog and a pony show. And the dog and the pony show that brings everyone in this week has to be taught next week to keep them coming. When the conversation is more about the performance than it is the one that we worship, something's wrong with that. And we've gotten bored with the Son of God. Church, if you love him, if you know him, And if you remind yourself constantly of who you were and what you were before he found you, you will not be bored with him. You will be thrilled. There are times when I come into a service, and that service is not about how well Pastor Dan preaches, and he does it right. It's not about how well Brent and and Gerard and Jovan and the choir do the music, and it's over the top. That's not what it's about for me. It's about hearing the word that God has for me and responding to it. I can worship to anything, just about. I haven't tried everything, so I can't make that as a definite statement. But I can worship to old. I can worship to new. I can worship to something in between. I don't have to have the newest and the latest from Hill songs to be able to worship. I Not my favorite, but I can worship to the Gaithers. I knew Arlene would like that. Because it's not about the music, it's about the one that I'm worshiping. It's not about all the performance and all the, all the dramatics that can go on in a sermon. It's about the content of the message and is it teaching me something and enriching my life from God's word. They got bored with what God was giving to them. And I think the church of 2015 is bored by and large with Jesus. Or so they say. My response to that is, have you met him? Because if you know him, you can't really get bored with him. Because it's the angels, the seraphim, that every day, every moment from the time they were created, they look at him and they go, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And they cover their face with two wings and they look at him again and they start all over again. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Do you know why I think they can do that? for thousands times ten thousands and thousands of years and even into eternity as long as they exist, I think the reason they can do that and never get bored is because they're standing face to face with him and they look at him and they go, holy, holy, holy. They cover their face with their wings and they look at him again and they see something that they've never seen before and they have to start all over again. And they've been doing this for thousands times ten thousands of years. That's how awesome our God is. How dare we get bored with him? If we're bored, it's our fault and not his. If we're bored, there's something wrong with us because there's nothing wrong with him. He is altogether lovely and perfect. They're tired of what the Lord's been giving to them. They're bored. They're ungrateful for what God has done for them, for what they've received from the Lord. They have failed to be grateful for the manna and the water from a rock. They failed to be grateful for the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day. They failed to be grateful for the leadership that they have in Moses and Aaron and Miriam and others. They are so ungrateful and all they can see 
is what they think they have to have and don't have. When I was in seminary many, many years ago, I was on what I call a tuna fish ramen noodle diet. That was for a few reasons. Number one, there was no kitchen at Bernard Hall, and all I had was a microwave that I had to share with 25 other girls on my floor and a crock pot, one of those little tiny crock pots at that. And that was all I could afford. But do you know, I was so glad to be there, I didn't care. I was so glad to have the opportunity to hear about Jesus and to learn and to learn Hebrew and Greek. I wouldn't dare complain. I was so glad to be there. Church, a grateful heart has a right attitude. But a person with an ungrateful heart, that's an attitude no one can correct. There's not, in the words of my mom, there's not a switch big enough to take that one down. <laughs> Cultivate gratefulness in your life because gratefulness is an intentional act on our part. We choose to be grateful. As bad as your day has been, as bad as things may have gone for you, find something good and focus on that. The fact that you're in this place tonight and you're breathing in and breathing out, that's something to be grateful for. The fact that you're in the great state of Texas, <laughs> that's something to be grateful for. The fact that you're a part of Bethesda Community Church or the fact that you're a part of some fellowship that's alive in the things of Jesus, that's something to be grateful for. Teen Challenge, that's something to be grateful for. The rabble. These are the non-Hebrews. They have no part in the promise of God. Pretty much what happened is that they were there for personal gain, for greed, and a quick ticket out of Egypt. Do you know that there are people who will always attach themselves to you because they're looking for an easy way out? And for some reason, they think that you are that ticket? Listen to them because what they say and the way they behave will always give them away. These are the rabble. Their appetite is for meat. It's not wrong to want meat. Their desire is normal and natural and good. If they'd asked for meat, I think God would have given it to them. But instead, they whined and complained and remembered Egypt and disdained all that God had done for them. Listen to this. You cannot long for Egypt and the things of Egypt with all of its amenities without considering the precious things of God as something to be disdained or treated lightly. If you long for the things of Egypt, then you are in fact rejecting the things that God's provided for you. If you're longing and magnifying, romanticizing the things of Egypt, it comes at a cost. And that cost is that you have to disdain, neglect, and reject the provisions of the Lord. We're talking about some serious actions here. They were willing to give up their right and privilege as the people of God's presence and heirs to the promise of Abraham. What were they willing to give that up for? I mean, the heirs of Abraham, the people of God's presence, the chosen covenant people of God. What were they willing to give that up for? Leeks, fish, and garlic. Somebody else in scripture that gave up something pretty precious for something that was pretty worthless, Esau and Jacob. Esau was hungry, and he came to Jacob, and he said, Give me some porridge lest I die. It's not about to die. The fact that he had enough strength to ask for it is indication that he wasn't about to die. Jacob, always looking for a, for a way to get a one-upmanship, said, Here you go. Here's a bowl of stew, but it's going to cost you. I want your birthright. 
And Esau rejected his birthright that day and sold it for a bowl of soup. Let me put it in language we can understand. He traded all the promises and glorious inheritance that he had through his grandfather Abraham. He gave it all away for a bowl of pintos. Now, I like pintos a lot, grew up on them, but I'm not going to trade my birthright in Jesus Christ for a bowl of beans. The church is doing that. Christians are doing that. We're trading the precious things of God for a moment of pleasure, for a moment of compromise, and we're selling our birthright, lock, stock, and barrel, to be immediately gratified. Now, God is going to cure their craving for meat by giving them meat beyond their imagination, and they're going to gorge themselves on it They're going to literally eat themselves to death. Years, years, years ago, multiple decades ago, I was in a relationship. God told me to get out of the relationship, and I said, I rebuke you, devil. God kept saying, I want you out of the relationship, and I kept saying no. God sent prophets to tell me to get out of the relationship, and I still said no. And I even thought to myself, look at how the devil is after this relationship that he would raise up these people to bring a word against it. I was stubborn. I was stupid. And finally, I'm teaching Old Testament at Southwestern Assemblies of God, and I'm teaching this portion of Scripture. And as I'm teaching this to the students, the Lord speaks to me and says, if you don't leave it alone and let it go, I'm going to give it to you. And you will regret Every moment of every day that you didn't let it go when I told you to. I couldn't let it go fast enough after that. When God tells you to let something go, let it go. Because one of the ways that God cures us of something is by giving it to us in such abundance that it comes out of our nostrils and gorging us on it. Church, we need to let him bury our cravings because the only thing that we should desire, the only thing that we should be passionately in pursuit of is the Lord Jesus Christ. You will always crave and eventually give in to the wrong thing when, number one, you demand immediate gratification. Immediate gratification is one of the most deadly things to a vibrant spiritual life. Two, when you fail to recognize the value of God's anointing, and his call on your life. Do not take the call of God on your life lightly. If God's called you, and God's called every person in this room, you wouldn't be here if he had not. Every one of you have a unique, special call on your life. Do not take it lightly. Just because it doesn't look like someone else's, just because it's not, quote-unquote, important, just because it's not flashy, do not consider it as anything less than important. I read Billy Graham's biography, Just As I Am, and one of the first stories in there is that there was a man in North Carolina who had been doing a revival, and for the entire week, he'd been preaching salvation, and no one had responded. This man had even said to the pastor that was sponsoring the revival, there's no response, so I'm thinking that maybe the Lord wants me to pack up and go on. And he stayed for one more night, and that night, two little boys came down and accepted Christ. They were about nine and ten years old. And they came down and they accepted Christ. And the man left thinking he had been a miserable failure. What wouldn't be known for many years was the fact that those two little boys were Billy Graham and Billy Sunday. Do not underestimate the small things. 
Do not take the call of God on your life lightly. You may reach one person, but that one person may reach millions. You may speak into one child's life that seems insignificant, but that one child may be a world changer and a world mover. Do not hold lightly the things of God in your life. You are set up to give in to wrong cravings when you do not take seriously the word of God. When God says don't do it, he means just that, don't do it. When God says let it go, he means let it go. Take the word of God seriously. What God calls sin is sin. I don't care what society, what government, what politics, or any other group say, sin is sin if that's what God says it is. What is righteous, what God says is righteous is righteous. When you begin to listen to the rabble in your life, you're sons and daughters of light, and they are not. When you begin to listen to the rabble in your life, it will have an influence on you. True story. This young lady, she and her husband were having some difficulties in their marriage, both of them born-again Christians, filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to have a difficult patch in their marriage. And she went to get her hair fixed at a salon here in the Fort Worth area. The gal that did her hair was pagan, a party animal pagan. She began to get marriage counsel from this lady who did her hair and told her, honey, life's too short to be unhappy. Walk away from it all and have yourself some fun. That woman took the counsel of rabble and left her family. And I don't know where she is today, but wherever it is, I know it's a place filled with regret. Do not listen to the rabble in your life. Surround yourself with godly counsel, men and women who'll speak the truth to you in love, who'll tell you what you don't want to hear because it's what you need to hear. You know that you are going to give in to your cravings if you do not take sin seriously. There's no such thing as a little imperfection over here or over there, a little oopsie here and there. Sin is sin and requires repentance. When you begin to remember Egypt romantically, and have pleasant thoughts about Egypt. And when you become bored with the Son of God and the things of his kingdom, it is a devastation that these people had come out of Egypt. They'd come so far and changed so little. It doesn't stop with the quail. In Numbers chapter 12, verses 1 through 16, you have Aaron and Miriam. Now it's not the people. Now it's Moses' brother and sister. And they come to Moses and they begin to bring accusations against him because of his wife. Now, I could go into a lot of the theological detail about that, but it would bore us all. And then the truth comes out. They're not really upset about the woman that Moses is married to. What they're upset is that Moses is getting top billing and they're not. What they're upset about is that Moses is getting more attention than they are and they want equal attention. And they bring accusations against this man in the presence of the Lord. Miriam ends up with leprosy and Moses has to ask the Lord to bring healing to her in order for her to be restored to the camp. And neither she nor Aaron get to go into the promised land. Complaining and whining and bringing accusations are serious things. Their complaint, it started as a personal complaint about the wife of Moses and then the real reason shows itself, like I said. Moses is getting a lot of good press and they want equal billing. This is straight-out jealousy. Jealousy in the kingdom of God has no place. 
We're to prefer others over ourselves. Their complaining doesn't stop there. In Numbers chapter 13, verses 25 through chapter 14, verse 10, this is more than just fear. This is a direct disobedience and a lack of faith. Let's turn over and look at that. In Numbers chapter 13, the spies go in and check out the land. Twelve spies are sent. Ten come back with a negative report. Ten come back and says, we can do it because God said we can. But the ten spies that brought back the bad report, they stir up the entire camp against Moses, and they're ready to stone Moses, and they're ready to go back to Egypt because they've gotten this report of how powerful the enemies in the land might be. I wonder if they were thinking that God was just going to hand it to them, if they were going to walk into the land and the enemy was going to go, oh, you're finally here, we can pack up and leave now. When you begin to take the promise of God in your life, make no mistake about it, there will be a fight involved. If you're going to become everything that God's destined you to be, it will not be without some wrestling in the realm of the Spirit. It will not be without some people breaking relationship from you because they do not understand the call and position of God on your life. If you're going to take and be what God has destined you to be, there's some things that are going to have to be left behind and some battles that are going to have to be fought. So these, these spies bring back the negative report. Fear permeates like a disease through the camp. And the people want to go back to Egypt. Did God bring us all this way just so that we could be crushed like grasshoppers in the presence of giants? Can you hear them? I want to go back to Egypt. At least in Egypt, we weren't like grasshoppers in the presence of giants. No, you were slaves in the presence of an oppressor. Whenever we're faced with taking that which God has given to us and we see the giants, know this. All we have to do is move forward. God will give us what we need to bring them down. But they'll never come down if we do not move forward. It's more than just fear. This is an absolute lack of faith and trust in God. It's obedience. It's, it's disobedience. They're not going to do what God has told them to do. This is more than just fear. It's direct disobedience and a lack of faith. Just as surely as faith requires trust and obedience. As a matter of fact, trust plus obedience equals faith. Just as surely as faith requires trust and obedience... In order to be activated, fear requires doubt and disobedience. If you act on trust and obedience, that's faith. If you act on doubt and disobedience, that's fear. I have often thought faith is the complete absence of doubt, the complete absence of fear, but I have come to realize that faith means that in spite of my doubts, in spite of my fears, I move forward in obedience and trust to the Lord. Do not think that you're going to move with some kind of adrenaline rush of faith into what God has given to you. It will be the simple acts of trust and obedience. God, I'm afraid. God, I doubt. Help my unbelief because here I come. I am moving towards you to do that which you have placed within my heart. These people completely disobeyed God, completely doubted God. Look at verses 20 through 24 of chapter 14 with me. So the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word, but indeed as I live, 
All the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet they have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has had a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land which he entered and his descendants shall take possession of it. Because of that one choice that day, those people are destining themselves to an additional 30 plus years of wandering in the wilderness. They could have taken the land right then, right there. But because they did not trust the Lord, because they did not obey the Lord, they gave in to fear and doubt instead. Now they're going to have to wander through the wilderness additional years. Here's the mercy of God. For that entire generation, God provided for them every day, every year. They had to stay in the wilderness, yes, but God never forsook them. There was always the pillar of fire by night, the pillar of cloud by day, manna and water. There was always the provision of the Lord. And when they encountered an enemy, God empowered them to defeat that enemy. Never did God leave them and forsake them, even in their fear and disobedience. This is grace and mercy beyond anything any of us could ever imagine. Well, the complaints don't stop there. In Numbers chapter 16, verses 1 through 31, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. This is more than jealousy. This is more than fear and doubt. This is outright rebellion. They contest that Moses is no leader and that they should be leaders. They're trying to usurp his authority. Who gave Moses his authority? God did. You can't take away something that God has given to someone. You can't assert, usurp God-ordained, God-given authority. You can attack it. You can try to short-circuit it, but you cannot take it because you didn't give it. So they tried to attack, or they did attack, the authority of Moses. And what happened? The earth opened and swallowed them and their families. Even after that, not even, not even ten verses after that, even after seeing God swallow up Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, the people are going to blame Moses for the death of these guys. Now, they're no longer responsible for their choices and their sin. Now it's Moses' fault. Moses, you should have done something. It's your fault that they're all dead. This is even worse than rebellion. This is blasphemy. They're blaming Moses for what God did. Do you see the progression of what's happening? Do you see the progression of how it starts one way, but it never stops that way? In Numbers chapter 20, verses 2 through 11, it's now Moses. He's the leader. He's the man who speaks with God face to face. And he follows a similar path of the people. They're again complaining and whining for water. And God tells Moses, go and speak to the rock and let water come forth. But Moses, in anger, takes the staff of God and strikes the rock. And God is gracious enough to let water come out of the rock. But then he deals with Moses in private. And he says, because you have done this thing, you will not enter into the promised land, but I will let you see it. Some people have said, isn't it terrible to do that to poor Moses after dealing with those whiny people for all those years? With great, with great privilege and position comes great responsibility. When you become a man or a woman of spiritual maturity, 
and position, you also become a man or a woman with great responsibility. And the higher you are, the farther you can fall. But know this, God never takes you anywhere that he's not willing to keep you. This is a personal choice that Moses made to strike that rock instead of speaking to it. It reminds us that no matter how big and how bad we get, we can still fail God. It still comes down to trust and obey. Do what the Lord has told you to do. And then finally, we're told in Numbers 21, verses 1 through 9, and this is my translation of this, and the life force of the people was cut short, over and done with. That word katar in the Hebrew, it says um, impatient, but that, that's really not a good translation of the word katar. Qatar has more the idea they were out of breath. They were tired. They were just over it. Like a, like a, a, a harvest, a, like a field that had been harvested. They'd just been cut down. They didn't feel like they had anything left. That's a dangerous place for any of us to be. And the life force of the people was reaped, cut short, over and done with the ways of God. They weren't over and done with their own exploits. They were over and done with the journey that God had them on. And the people spoke against Moses and God, and they said, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we are sick to the point of vomiting with this disgusting food. They are calling the provision of God disgusting. And because of this complaint, God sends fiery serpents among them and begins to bite them, and some of them begin to die. And God speaks to Moses and he says, if you'll make the image of a serpent, put it on the end of a stick or a rod and lift it up, then everyone in the congregation who looks to that serpent will look and live. That's a huge thing. It's so huge that Jesus is going to refer to it in the New Testament because that serpent represents their sin and the culmination of all the complaints of Israel is simply this. Egypt was not a geographic location. Egypt was a heart condition. You can never blame your environment for your personal sin because sin's not an environmental issue. Sin is a heart issue. And when I speak of heart, I'm speaking of human nature. And these people, it didn't matter if they were born in Egypt or they were born in Dubai or they were born in Kathmandu. It would make no difference. It would still end the same because their nature had a problem. And getting them out of Egypt was not going to be enough to cure their nature. Giving them the law of God was not going to be enough to change their nature. Letting them see the shaking and the quaking of the mountain and the fire and the thunders and the trumpet blast. It's not going to be enough to change their nature. Seeing all the plagues that came upon Egypt just as the word of the Lord declared was not going to be enough to change their nature. Seeing the sea part and them walk across on dry ground while Pharaoh's army drowned was not going to be enough to change their nature. Seeing manna come down from heaven to feed them and water gush out of a rock was going to be convenient, but it wasn't going to be enough to change their nature. Seeing the water healed of its bitterness, seeing the cloud of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day was not going to be enough to change their nature. I love the miraculous and the supernatural. I love it all. 
because I just love to see God show off for his kids. I love it. But it's not enough to change our nature. You can come in and you can come in sick and leave healed, but it won't change your nature. You can come in filled with demons and leave free, but it won't be enough to change your nature. You can come in addicted to every substance known to humanity and leave delivered, but it won't be enough to change your nature. You will go right back to what God set you free from until the nature's changed. And when Moses puts that serpent on the end of a stick and lifts it up and says to them, look, he's saying, look at your sin. Be reminded that you can't help yourself. Be reminded that all the determination and self-will in the world is not enough to keep you from going back to that because your problem is a nature problem. Look and live. In John chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, Jesus said, just like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, representing the sin nature of humanity, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. It was a shadow of what Jesus was going to do on the cross for us because everyone who looks to Calvary will live. Everyone who looks to Calvary will have a nature change, an ultimate healing, an ultimate deliverance. Everyone who looks will live. Everyone who embraces will be saved. Tonight, we are no different Then Israel, our hearts are filled with sin because we have a sin nature. But to those of us who have said yes to the government of God, to those of us who have said yes to the lordship of Jesus, he changes our nature. And we develop a taste for manna. And we're disgusted with Egypt. We develop a love for the water that comes out of a rock. And we're disgusted by that which comes out of a bar. When he changes our nature, he changes our cravings. So that we are no longer craving the affections and the things of this world. We are now craving the presence of a holy God. We are now magnificently obsessed with a God that will allow us to pursue him and find him. We look and we live. The complaints in the wilderness, it started first with boredom with what God had provided. It moved from boredom to fear and doubt. It moved from boredom to fear and doubt to rebellion. From boredom, from fear and doubt to rebellion to blasphemy. Till it started all over again. We don't like what you've provided for us. We're sick to death of this food to the point that we could vomit. I know that none of you have probably ever said this, but I can tell by actions and facial expressions that there have been some people who have said, I'm sick of church. I'm sick of hearing sermons. I'm sick of those worship songs. I'm sick of hearing people, Jesus, 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 all day long, and they're disgusted with the food of God. You don't have to tell me, but if that's playing in your heart and mind tonight, Get right with Jesus and ask him to change your appetite and to cure your cravings for those things which will destroy you. I invite you tonight to look and live and to realize 
that until your heart is changed, until your nature is changed through what we call the born-again salvation experience, then none of this other stuff matters. All the miracles, all the healings, all the deliverances, all the goosebumps in the world will not save you, but only a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Whether you're in the wilderness of Israel or the wilderness of this world, the people who make it through are the ones who say yes to the Lordship of Jesus. Would you stand with me? Tonight, Lord Jesus, we look to you. We look to the crucified God. We look to the resurrected one. We ask you tonight, Lord God, be the Lord of our hearts. Be the Lord of our thoughts. Be the Lord of our lives. We submit ourselves to your government tonight. We ask you to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Save us, Lord Jesus. Cause our cravings for the things of this world to go and cause us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. What a mighty God you are. What a gracious God you are. So tonight, I ask, Father, that each person receive their portion, apply it to their lives accordingly, and that we all bring honor and glory to your name. For it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.